Welcome to the Vortex Nation podcast, brought to you by lovers of hunting, shooting, public lands, the Second Amendment, and good food. How's it going, everybody? Today, we're going to talk a little bit about hunting after the sun goes down, in a legal fashion, naturally. Don't don't get us wrong there right off the bat, but night hunting for predators, coyotes especially. We have Matt across the table from us, Matt McHugh here, and he is a predator, I mean, calling, hunting expert. We actually uh, had him on another podcast here, and depending on how these release, you may have heard it yet, or you may have yet to hear it, but it's another great one. Kind of more specific to the day stuff, but now, I mean, you said you do, what, 99% of your hunting now after the sun goes down? I mean, when it's dark out and you're traipsing around and time of day where you can't really see that much. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with the naked eye. Some of the the naked eye. Some of the equipment you have here we'll get into, you can see quite a bit out there. But this is this is something I know uh one, I think we wanted to get into some of the topic of, you know, is it a whole different ball game when it gets to being nighttime in terms of hunting, especially again, we'll kind of key on coyotes a lot here, but is it a whole different ball game from the daytime or is it kind of the same thing, just different lighting conditions? And then also, I know a lot of people, I think, when they when they start talking about nighttime hunting, because of the limited visibility with just the naked eye, there's a lot of equipment out there that is designed to help you be able to see and then obviously make better shots. And that goes into everything from just artificial white light. You've got um, other kinds of light that are not necessarily visible to the naked eye, but visible under other pieces of equipment. You've got thermals. You've got night vision. And maybe even some other stuff out there that I might Different colors of light, perhaps. Yes. Yep, exactly. That's a lot of the stuff I've been interested in, because I would love to get out there during the evening time, the night time. I think one of the nice things about it is if you work during the day and you want to go hunting, right? your best bet is then, especially during the wintertime, because it gets dark so darn fast up here. I mean, by 5 o'clock, it's basically pitch black almost. Well, you know, and if you're if you're a family man, you got small kids, you know, getting out during the day or even, you know, even uh, on, on the weekend, right? That can be challenging. But, you know, maybe you put everybody to bed, read a couple stories, and everybody's asleep, and you can go out and That's right. hunt the rest of the night and probably be running a little bit ragged the next day. But, you Clandest- know, none the worse for wear. Some clandestine operations <laughs> while the kids are asleep. <laughs> Um, so Matt, really looking forward to, uh, to hearing all the stuff that you have to say because you do this so, so much. Now, hold on, Jim, real quick here, because a person may not have listened to the other podcast now where Matt introed himself, he gave, you know, probably a little bit more of a extended bio, which was fascinating. I'm just going to give the quick and dirty and then people kind of have a little bit of a framework to go off of of exactly who we're dealing with here. That's a good point. All right. Born and raised in Wisconsin. Grew up hound hunting for coons, rabbits, and bears. Family man. Bachelor's in wildlife ecology. Okay? So we got a scientist here, basically. So two-time world predator calling champion with his natural voice. Mm-hmm. So if you want to hear that, definitely tune back in. That's yep. impressive. Reloader. You're, you're a predator guide. You're doing uh, helping out with... Uh, uh, I guess, you know, problem predators, all sorts of stuff. You've been calling coyotes for 18 years. You know, you, you're working with the Fox Pro team. So, And as we learned, you actually listen to our podcast. Yeah. Probably, that's probably the most uh, uh, impressive fact on his resume, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, any, anything important that I missed there, Matt? No, that's, that's plenty. Yep. And, and I think one thing, like you said, Jim, we just did this entire 
podcast, I think it was like an hour and a half, but it was, I'm telling you guys, it was a good one. Oh, we didn't even get to everything. We didn't even get to everything. And it was all on day hunting. And come to find out, Matt does most of his hunting at night now. So mm-hmm. we're going to get into a lot of that. And, and maybe, at least to me, maybe a starting point there is why. Yeah. So coyote activity is a heck of a lot higher after dark in most areas and in most instances than it is in the daylight. So animals that are comfortable moving under the cover of darkness will throw inhibition to the wind a little bit quicker. You're going to see, I would say, 10 times more after dark with the proper equipment than you will in the daylight. So response to the call, your ability to learn from them and be humbled by them and all those interactions that you have, you have 10 times more of them in the same amount of time after dark. So it's a way to accelerate your learning program. But that's with with proper equipment. There are some limitations to hunting at night um, and some concerns that right off the bat need to be discussed. You know, safety is paramount. And, you know, to be out there after dark, your sense is limited as well then too. And whether it's a bright moonlit night or it's a, a snow snowy night and there's some maybe some light pollution from the nearby town and whatever that you're able to kind of work under, your visibility is limited. And when people are in the moment and you've got a, a coyote breaking cover coming across the field on the snow and you've got them in your crosshairs, you need to always be mindful of your target and what's beyond. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you can't stress that enough night hunting and hunting in general. But, uh, you know, you get tunnel vision inside of your scope and you're following across the field. And, you know, is there a, a set of farm buildings on the back side of the backside of the section or is there uh, a hunting buddy of yours or his pickup truck or you know whatever on the road there or a pasture full of cattle that you're swinging across while you're chasing this coyote through the field waiting for him to get into the ideal position or to stop for you you know so that stuff you know hunting after dark requires a lot of self-control and that's where equipment comes into play and you know so you talked a little bit about and teased out a little bit of the uh you know the light stuff Mm -hmm. um and then there's night vision options and thermal options and you know here in wisconsin we've got kind of a unique set of rules and where use of of lights is only allowed at the point of kill so the regs read that and to the layman that can mean a lot of different things there can be a lot of gray in there Mm -hmm. where you you have a a geographic point on the map. Is that the point of kill? So I'm in position. I've walked there. I'm not scanning on the way. I'm not driving around out of the truck. I'm in position, ready to hunt, and I'm planning to kill something here. Is that point of kill? Oh. Oh, so you could be, theoretically, if you interpreted that way, like scanning with your light, but that's the point at which you're doing that scanning. Right. It's a geographic point. Or is it the point that that animal is being killed by you? Like a point in time. Right. Is that when you're taking your safety off? Or is that when you're breaking your trigger? Or is that when the bullet is entering the vitals and stopping the heartbeat? What is the point of kill? So it, it's a very poorly worded regulation. Mm-hmm. And it takes a fair bit of digging to get to what's the real definition. And that is you need to identify the animal to a species in open season prior to turning on your light. Okay. Okay. So... In that open season where you're allowed to only night hunt for coon, fox, and coyote in Wisconsin, you have to 
be in in those seasons. So part of the night hunting season, you know, is open to coyotes year round. You can night hunt for raccoons, you can night hunt for fox, but they each have a season on them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, at any any point in there, you can inadvertently put yourself in a bad spot using lights. So lights in conjunction with a thermal monocular or a thermal scanner can be a really good way to get folks into it, get folks started with it. Other parts of the country where you're able to use light unrestricted, you can scan for eyeballs and try to pick them up. But here in Wisconsin, we've got issue with that until we see the animal and identify it to species in open season, we can't scan for them. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and as, as specific as that is, and maybe as irresponsible as it is to have it worded that way, if I have your dog coming out of your yard at me while I'm out there blowing a rabbit call in the field and turn my light on to see, oh, that's not a coyote, that's a house dog. Yeah. I'm scanning in possession of a firearm in closed season. Hmm. Oh. If I have... Because there is no season for house dogs. Correct. Okay. And <laughs> it's the responsible and it's the responsible. Glad we thing. cleared that up, Jim. Yeah. Right. But it's the responsible thing to do to positively ID that animal before I point my rifle at it. I would wholeheartedly or, or, agree. Or before I point my shotgun at with it. With the canine thing. Yes. Maybe I could bring up. So a German Shepherd, an Australian Shepherd, you know th- those pieces there. It requires self control. And when somebody is in the moment and they're sitting there calling for coyotes and howling like coyotes and a coyote howls and whatever in the distance, your head is in that coyote game. And if it's a fox out of season, you're shining one possession of a firearm in close season. If there are deer bedded up in a fence row and there's coyotes coming at you screaming and barking and yelling to tell you to leave and they flush those deer out of the fence row and they get up off the fence row and come at you across the field and you see that movement on the snow and turn your light on to identify them as deer... You're shining with possession of a firearm in closed season. Hmm. I see the... Um, yes. Well, it just doesn't seem like a very practical rule. Is that the word for it? Or, like, I get that the... In, I get That's the intent. PC, PC way. I get the intent, kind of, maybe, but it just... Is the intent that we just don't have a bunch of lights just at night shining around everywhere, or what? I mean... No. Uh, or is it just I, that somebody... Is it one of those cases where somebody made a law and they weren't exactly intimately familiar with how everything worked. It, Not that that's ever happened before. <laughs> <laughs> Buckshot. <laughs> um, no, the, uh, I think the justification for it initially, and it's been standing for a long time, yeah. um, was to try to close a loophole for somebody poaching a deer. Right. To be okay. out there saying, well, no, I'm coyote hunting. And the scary thing, you know, when I had first kind of got involved in that debate was the warden's interpretation is, at the end of the day, what it comes down to. If there's a warden called out to the scene and his interpretation is that you had your light on something that wasn't a coyote or a fox or a coon, or were you able to scan to the south and click your light off and that was okay and just spot check a, a thing, you know, was that all right? Or I know you're coyote hunting, you know, I don't, you don't have to worry about it. Hmm. You know, so there's a lot of gray area yeah. left to the warden's interpretation, just like any law, just like, you know, that's the officer's interpretation at that time to, determine who gets a fine. Mm-hmm. No, so there's there's too much gray in that. And mm-hmm. even the way that it's worded is unfair and irresponsible. So, you know, to expect somebody to be out there calling, you know, because they're worried about getting on the wrong side of the law with a light using the moonlight, you know, that really limits your ability to make a good positive ID. And there's been, you know, horror stories here in the state of uh, domestic dogs getting shot by somebody mm. 
uh, calling under moonlight and they had reflective collars on and you would have been able to see that if you were on a light mm-hmm. but you still would have been in violation turning a light on them because they weren't coyote but wild <laughs> wild looking canines coming into a rabbit distress call in the middle of the night well you're in the right and somebody else is in the right and the dog is caught in the middle it's a a bad situation. So, Interesting. you know, I, I urge everybody, if you are interested in night hunting, uh, you know, there is some investment to make with it to do it safely for that peace of mind and for just the ethics involved. And, you know, there's some night vision options out there that can increase your ability to see, and those are amplified by infrared light and, you know, the starlight scopes and things like that. If you've got a good moonlit night on the snow, you can see it quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And if you've got your infrared illuminator running, and depending on where you're hunting, you can utilize some of that stuff, you can see it quite a bit. But that infrared light is still an emitted light. Okay. So night vision, oh, yeah. that infrared light and you know a red beam or a white beam, those are all an emitted light. So you need to be really cautious and careful with that and still only be using it at the point of kill. Is Wisconsin the only state like that, or are there others that have it's unique the, light? rules uh there are some that have some other unique ones i would say ours is probably the most egregious oh okay (laughs) (laughs) to put it lightly yeah that's what i was going to say is like you know you're kind of putting this pickle you know and not to pick on wisconsin maybe i don't know but it does seem pretty unique to this state every other place that i've lived where you can hunt coyotes at night um it just seems like you're able to use i guess a little bit more logic in the thinking of of the use of the light Mm mm-hmm well, and, you know, some of it is uh, some of the some of the other states worded as you need to be on foot. Uh, okay. And some of the other states worded as uh, you know you can you can use thermal, but you can't use lights or you know whatever. And and some of that stuff, you know, to use thermal and not lights is uh, kind of a a kick in the pants for some of the guys that maybe can't afford to make that investment but still want to get out. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, don't want to necessarily do it with the moonlight or whatever, but still there's a stigma around night hunting um, that folks that don't do it or aren't engaged in it tend to fall very quickly to this idea that because we are night hunting, we're violating in some some mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a it's a closure of a loophole for somebody out there trying to shoot a deer is mm-hmm. the way that it was built. Right. You know, and, and ultimately for a person like you or or I'd say I'd have to think the vast majority of people that – they want a coyote hunt. They want a predator hunt. They want to do that at night. Your goal is to make that positive ID and and make the most you know ethical, fast, quick kill possible. Like that's your goal. And so taking some of those tools away, or just making their use very convoluted and confusing. Right. Yeah. You know, and I think you know people like us. It's like you want to follow all the rules. Like you said, there's some gray area. There's some interpretation there. It's like, what do you what do you yeah. mean by that? Yeah. Yeah. So you you bring up too. I mean, like we've been talking about, is a lot of these these things with lights. I mean, in in the positive idea, that's such a huge thing when you're hunting at night. Mm-hmm. I know I've heard when I initially heard about night hunting, and I, sh- I shouldn't even say like I heard about night hunting, but when I sort of like my interest was piqued in it, and uh, I kind of assumed the first thing that you'd want to get is is night vision. Like literally, it the name says what you want to have: <laughs> night vision. <laughs> Um, and so I, you know, I started thinking like, well, that, that's the perfect add thing to, to add, have. To, add to cart, add to cart, right. For six grand or whatever they are, <laughs> you know, up, upwards probably. But, you know, and, uh, I thought, well, you can walk around, you can see everything. And then, you know, when you see a coyote, you shoot it. Well, then I saw people, you know, and then a lot of people say, well, thermal and, and thermal has its own unique advantages. And, 
And I've heard people say, well, actually, for hunting purposes, thermal is probably maybe even better than night vision. And then there's also just just regular lights. Like I know some people just go out and they've just got super bright, visible to the naked eye lights that they go out and use. And um, what are, I guess, if you were to describe all these, I don't know if I did a good enough job describing them, but have you used all these different various means out there? And then um, what are the pros and cons of each of them? And, and Yeah, how are you using them together? Yeah. yeah. Sure. You know, so I guess we'll start off on kind of the basic end of it with uh, with lights. So, you know, other parts of the country where we're able to use lights, there's a, a big discussion and debate about light color and whether it's red or green or amber or white. From my experience and from my research, it is the intensity of the light that spooks them. It's not, and it's the the quick introduction of that intense light that's, okay. that spooks them. It's not so much the color. Um, folks say, well, coyotes can't see red, so they have no idea that you're shining a light and it's invisible. They don't see red in terms of red. They see it as kind of a mustard color. But it's just striking their their rods and cones a bit differently. But the color of the light is a personal preference thing. And it might come down to your, um, you know, your, your setup if you're using day glass on, on your rifle with a rifle-mounted light. Um, and there's a lot of really great options out there. And, uh, I mean, like Fox Pro had just come out with their gunfire series with the interchangeable lights and this is uh, one of the scanning lights where I've got red and I've got white okay. and I've got green and I've got amber and I've got the ability to dim it which is really big oh. and I can focus it to a tight spot and oh, wow. open it up yeah. and do a lot of fun things with it and I can switch for positive ID to white with sure. the press of a button from anywhere. It's pretty cool. So you know that they've got some really neat stuff out there um, for the places where you can't hunt with thermal where you can you know do a lot of work with lights and scan with lights and that kind of thing. White light is really great for positive ID, especially with a decent piece of glass on there to be able to use your white light as yeah. night vision. Get um, a little bit more, I guess, I suppose, you can identify colors better, contrast better, and then yep. stuff like that. Yep. And, um, you know, the idea with the, the the other frequencies of light, your red doesn't carry quite as far. It's mm-hmm. not going to be as, you know, intrusive either to your neighbors or to, you know, the animals while you're calling. And... Um, some of the idea with the scanning is you want to stay above the animal and kind of halo them a little bit, right? Hmm. As you're as you're scanning. So if you're if you're looking for them to come be bopping out of a woodlot and you're running your your beam, your focused beam or your uh, diffused beam up a little a little ways so that there is some diffused light falling down onto them, uh, but you're you're kind of keeping that circle above the wood line as you're as you're swinging your light beam that's going to be enough to make their eyes reflect back at you mm-hmm. so that is your first indicator that you've got something there and then you know there's other cues that you can use with that to help you on your way to a positive id but aren't adequate to say that's precisely what i've got they're based on eyeballs but you know a, a fox or a bobcat have got shorter legs than a coyote a fox kind of moves with happy feet um, and bounce in, but so do house cats and okay. you know, all kinds of other things. So that's going to be your first indicator that you've got something there. And or you can use thermal in conjunction with a light uh, on your rifle to say, yep, I've got something coming up the fence row here. And a lower end thermal, you might just see a hot spot and not be able to make a positive ID through the grass or whatever. And then get on it, pick up the eyeballs in your in your night vision or your day glass with a light and 
watch it come out into the open and get your positive ID that way. So there's you know a lot of ways to to go about it, but light color is not anywhere near as important as the intensity. And okay. as you're putting yourself in that coyote shoes, responding to a sound stimulus in the middle of the night, there's yard lights and there's street lights and all kinds of stuff off in the distance that a small light on the hill isn't going to spook them. Okay. okay. If, yeah, I wouldn't have thought. I, that if makes they're sense. standing in the beam of a spotlight and it flicks on when they're 30 yards away, yeah, gone. Yeah. Um, Surprise. Yeah, exactly. And that sets up some of the... Might as well just bring out the megaphone. <laughs> Mr. Coyote, <laughs> sir, please stop. <laughs> well, and that's, and that's exactly it. And then that sets you up for a situation where you've got to be able to make an ethical kill quickly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to your point. So that's where uh, some of the shotgun things come into play and you know you can do a lot of things with shotguns there's a lot of tactical accessories and things that you can put you know lights on the side of your side of your forend or uh, clamp to the barrel or whatever you uh, decide to do with that mm-hmm. and you can pop up with a pressure switch or with a butt cap switch or whatever you want to do to get your quick positive id but you pretty well need to be ready to go Yep. Um, mm-hmm. If you blast them with a tactical light, it's gone. So uh, other things that I've done uh, in the past with the, the scanning stuff, very much a homespun idea, but uh, we've got a extendable monopod here and a Picatinny rail that I could mount a scanning light to. So Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. Now, Is that- with my hand on this and my rifle in the fork or my shotgun in the fork, I can track whatever I'm on using this beam of light on the monopod, it's always pointed in the right direction. So if I grab the shotgun and throw it up there quick, or grab a, a piece of day glass or something like that on a on a two two three, um, without a light mounted on it and it's all set up for night hunting, I've got my night hunting piece to put in addition to my regular yeah. rifle or shotgun and a great support then, yeah. too for making your shot. Yep, and depending on where you're hunting, uh, if you're hunting in the woods or in the brush or in the cover. Um, you know, a lot of guys like to sit down and dig themselves in even at night. I like to be on my feet. I like to be mobile. I like to, if I need to pack up and move in a hurry to get over the hill and see if I can get an opportunity at them yet, or get across the road to the other side if I've got permission there, or even just swing around behind me, I can do a lot of that from my feet leaning up against a tree in the dark and be adequately camouflaged. Yeah. Okay. You know, so there's a lot of ways that you can adapt lights and things to your setup. And I mean, that's set up. I mean, that... You know, if, particularly if you're going to be hunting at night by yourself and you don't, maybe you don't have somebody else holding that light, you know, you yep. only have so many hands. Right. And that, yeah. That's like having two hands right there. <laughs> yep. And even, you know, to be holding a scanning light up like this and swinging for the whole night can be fatigued to the shoulder. Sure. For sure. And something like that, all I'm doing is rolling my wrist. Mm-hmm. Hmm. You know, so it... uh you know, it's it's an efficiency piece, but uh, but yeah. So I mean, that that kind of setup um, works really well for shotgunning and and even rifle hunting, especially if you've got a tree to support instead of you know trying to sit off of a bipod or your swagger sticks and and all that kind of stuff. You can just lean up against a tree and nice. be ready to go with it. So there's a lot of a lot of ways that you can adapt this sport and and make it fit you or your budget or your area or, or your style. The nice thing, speaking of budget, there though, is that. I think a lot of people, when they hear night hunting, like like I did, they instantly go to night vision and thermal. Mm-hmm. So you're already talking four or five figures. Whereas you're discussing, I mean, the possibility to go out there at least with buying a light. You know, you do a little 
homebrew monopod job like that, and you got your gun, even if it's a 12-gauge shotgun, and uh, you can go out with something and still night hunt effectively without dropping just buku dollars. Yep. And, you know, for those that are just getting into it, for the educational aspects of it, but then also for positive ID and, um, you know, the safety aspects of it, I would highly recommend that you get into shotgunning. So you might not be stacking up the numbers that guys with thermal units are, but you're going to learn a lot about the game. And, you know, in the other podcast, we talked a little bit about some of the setups where, you know, we've got a, a ditch or a travel corridor that is a very focusable spot to set your coyote's path into that stand. Building the stand off of that with your collar up when letting it blow to a gap or an opportune spot on that travel corridor for you to take them or for your partner to take them. And, you know, set your shotgun shooter right on that ditch or right in that ditch or 10 yards downwind of that ditch so that as that animal's cruising through, it's really easy to make a good positive ID. Gotcha. Yeah. And shotgun is very effective at that range, and mm-hmm. it's very safe in that instance. And you can utilize a light on a shotgun very quickly and be ready. So, okay. you know, that kind of stuff, it's a really good way to... Learn how to set the stands up. Learn how to get ahead on that chessboard. And then beyond that, be able to build off of your experience and work your way up as you get a little bit deeper into the sport. And night hunting is not for everybody. You know, it's colder and, you know, there's needing to get up for work in the morning or, you know, wrecking your weekend. Unless you're going to night hunt both weekends, you throw yourself and do a huge mess for Sunday when the wife wants you to go, you know, hang out with the in-laws or whatever the deal is, you know. Scared um, of the dark. Scared of the dark. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So, you know, I would definitely recommend for those that are just getting into it to, you know, find a, a way that you can adapt to your area and then what you can do safely um, and get some coyotes under your belt, get some fox under your belt, get in a mental picture for what those things look like so that when a deer comes banging out into the field, your knee-jerk reaction isn't up in the safety off. Yeah. Um, you know, all of those things come with some experience, and, you know, to get your foot wet, it's a really great place to start with shotguns. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, I mean, and we're talking about, you know, getting into it, right? Like, a lot of people already have a shotgun. You know, you like oh, yeah. you pointed out, Jim, you don't need to just, like, jump in and get all this crazy expensive gear. It's like yeah. a lot of your kit that you probably already have, maybe a few specialized pieces, including a light, you know, that's going to be optimal for, for hunting at night and give her a try. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, when you get into looking at some of those lights, there's uh, a lot of stuff out there that's tailored to pig hunting or they're tactical lights that are flipped over into the hunting world because you can lock them on a quad rail or something, you know, put some thought into that purchase. And, you know, a really great place to start are you know, the, the places that are built and driven and motivated by predator hunting. Mm-hmm. So something like Fox Pro, where, you know, we've got light options that you can open them up, close them down, dim them, be able to switch into white light at the press of a button to get your positive ID regardless of what color you're in. You know, those kinds of things are set up around safety and around um, getting that good positive ID and being able to do it quickly yeah. and efficiently mm-hmm. because you don't have a lot of time while they're out in front of you. You know, so... Look to look to those places where things are thought out for you already, and uh, you know having the the light options that go, you know white, red, and infrared, and then you know if you're going to start there and then you're going to do some red light hunting or whatever, that's fine. 
if you're going to upgrade from that into night vision, now you've got a really great IR illuminator, also rifle mounted or hand scan. Mm-hmm. Um, but the rifle mounted stuff, the shotgun mounted stuff is great. It eliminates the need for the extra hand and you can keep yeah. things steady and keep them with your sight picture and, you know, move around and make sure that you get your good positive ID and you're not trying to shoot off of your wrist or, you know, whatever with the gun. So, you know, I think some of that stuff through uh, before you jump into that purchase and, you know, likely for a couple of hundred bucks or, you know, 500 bucks, um, you can get yourself set up well and you haven't got to have uh, a lot invested in your camo and you haven't got to have a lot of invested in your shotgun and you haven't got yeah. to have a lot invested in, you know, anything other than gas and time. So, yeah, you know, you can shorten your learning curve quite a bit um, when you get down in the ditches with them and watch the way they respond to those calls. And hunting with a partner is a great way to start, too, and or somebody that's got some experience doing it that's happy to take you under their wing. And then doing those partner setups, those buddy setups, where, you know, if you get into some hand calls or get into some diaphragm calls um, and you're not ready to take the leap and get into a, a fancy electronic caller, there's ways to adapt those setups with buddy calling. You know, if you know they're going to end up downwind, whether it's daytime or nighttime, um, they're either going to end up on top of the call or they're going to end up making a downwind circle. So you don't have to see the whole world. You haven't, right. you haven't got to be popping flares and all that kind of stuff so you can see 600 yards out there if you haven't got the investment made. Focus on the travel corridors. Focus on those pinch points or that that knob or that piece of high ground downwind that we know they're going to go to. Mm-hmm. You know, So it takes some planning and some thought to go into some of that stuff. Um, but that's not to say that you can't just go plop down in the rock pile, blow on a rabbit call, and kill a couple coyotes a year. Um, it just depends on how deep you want to get into it and how uh, how successful you're you're looking to get at it. And is it just on just on your 40, or is it something where you want to take it countywide and, and uh, make a name for yourself? So a lot of different ways to to build it out. You know, so moving out of the night vision or moving out of the, the lights into the night vision stuff. Yeah, night vision as awesome as it is, and you know, there's there's places where you know you can really make great use of it hog hunting in Texas and things like that where you can, and and even um, coyote hunting and predator hunting other places where you're driving around with your lights off under night vision, you can see through the glass and, you know, be dark and stealthy and cruising in there on your bad boy buggy or whatever you want to do and get in nice and close and tight. Again, you need to have those eyeballs at a distance to pick up the animal. Mm-hmm. And limitations on night vision, you know, it's a couple hundred yards. Mm-hmm. And then with that, you're looking, you know, with an IR illuminator, ideally, you're now looking through a, you know, a beam of light. You've got that tunnel that you can see well, and the rest of the night is the night. Mm-hmm. So you've got to have a really good basis for your safe fields of fire. And if I know that there's buildings over here, I might set myself in, in position to where I'm going to swing my rifle across my periphery and smack into this tree before I make it into an unsafe shooting area. Yeah. So little things like that can help you with some of that and be thinking that stuff out, be setting that stuff out, or even hunting off the tripods like we've got back here. I might set myself up to where if I know I've got something in the distance that I see on the aerial photo or I can see smoke rising out of the chimney through my thermal scope or whatever, I'll set the caller in line with that. So I've got that reference to know I'm not going to shoot anything in the direction of the call. And typically you have plenty of opportunity to catch the coyotes before they end up with their nose on the caller. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, or you set yourself up that way. 
but I might also use a little thing like my tripod legs. So if I'm scanning off of that tripod with my rifle and I have to step over a tripod leg to get a shot, I know I'm out of my safe field of fire. Okay. So, yeah. you know, little little. Th- little things like that can help you, but certainly the best thing you can do is be familiar with the area and, you know, use really yeah. great equipment to know your target and what's beyond. If you know that there's nothing back there for miles and you're shooting into a hill and you've got a good safe backdrop to shoot that, you know, those are stands that you can have a little more freedom on. Yeah. Um, yeah. I was going to say like probably either scouting during the day, even yes. if you plan on hunting at yep. night could be pretty handy. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And new construction isn't always on your aerial photos if that's all you got to go <laughs> off of. There you go. One of the things, you know, speaking equipment wise specifically with night vision is, it seems like there are some, well, there's a couple of drawbacks to it, and I, you kind of alluded to a few of them, but, you know, I feel like one is, you know, the expense and everything that goes into it, and there's there's clip-on night vision devices, so then there's also binocular devices and monocular devices that would then go helmet-mounted, and if you're going that route, you're talking about you got to get a helmet, and maybe you just go with the bump helmet so it's not some full-on ballistic-style thing. Then you got to figure out what mount you're going to get for the helmet. Then you got to figure out, you know, what how your device clips into that. And then you're talking about counterweights on the back of your helmet if you want to be using it for a long extended period of time and not have neck fatigue. There's other cool tactical stuff you can stick on your helmet if you're feeling crazy. But uh, then IR illuminators are good to have, like you mentioned. And if you are the helmet-mounted route, I don't always think it's as intuitive... Tell me if I'm wrong, because you have more experience with this stuff than I do. From what, I, from what I've gathered, it's not always as intuitive to use your actual sight that you might have mounted on top of your rifle scope as it would be to get a laser or something like a, a that would that would work in conjunction with the night vision. And then you can just hold your rifle at more of a low ready-ish style position, not completely low ready, pointing at the ground, but not hold it up to your eye, and then you use the laser. And then that has its own limitations, because the laser is zeroed, and it's not just like it, your bullet that comes out of your rifle isn't a laser. It has ballistics and everything. So then you're kind of limiting your distance possibly. And yep. it can get kind of into a into a little bit of a quagmire of all kinds of different things to consider, right? Yes, indeed. And you know, like here in Wisconsin, it's illegal to hunt with laser. So, okay, right. Oh, okay. So like to have a, a red dot sight on a, on a pistol or something to shoot a coon out of a tree is illegal unless you're a disabled hunter. Um, you know, so that's a that's or a like a la- like a laser, like a visible beam of light type yes. sight. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm talking oh, about. Okay, yeah. Well, and, and in your instance, an IR laser, you know, mounted on the forehead of an AR that you're using in conjunction with nods is that same thing. Yeah, oh, a laser that's projected out from the gun. Yes, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. yeah, and um, it, yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of stuff that goes into that, and then eye fatigue and headaches and that kind of thing if you're trying to run binos and um, and that kind of stuff. So with that, then too, it's it's handier, more so for the walking in and walking out, um, yeah. than, okay. than a thermal would be, or trying to run a headlamp or whatever to walk in and walk out. If you're trying to maintain a level of stealth uh, beyond uh, stumbling over brush and, and trees yeah. and stuff on your way in, or banging your your aluminum pieces into stuff and and whatever, because um, a thermal might not necessarily show like a pothole you're about to walk yes. up on, like night vision would. Yep, you know, so there's there's drawbacks on on both of those and. Uh, you know, I would say, you know, if we focus more on the the on stand calling stuff in and, and looking at at that as far as our uh, pros and cons to build off of, like the the animals coming in under night vision, if you have the starlight scope and no infrared illuminator, 
or they're out on the on the snow with no beam of light going at them, you're less likely to pick up the eyes. I mean, you'll be able to see them once they break cover and get out in the open. And running that IR, once you see them out there, is going to help you with your positive ID. It can give you a much cleaner image of the animal uh, in a lot of instances than what thermal will as you're looking at the heat signature mm-hmm. versus the actual image. You know, so that kind of stuff uh, can be a drawback for new shooters or new new night hunters um, trying to get a trying to get a good positive ID with we'll say uh, lower end night vision stuff. There's a lot of limitations on that, and if you're going to uh, you know white foss or Gen three plus stuff, you're spending a pretty good amount of money. Yeah. Um, whereas some of the digital night vision options that are out there are great for 50 yards, 100 yards, uh, things like that. And, you know, not a terrible place for folks to start. But, again, just be very, very mindful of your target and what's beyond. Mm-hmm. Now, getting into the upper end of the night vision spectrum and and then into the thermal world there, and there's some pretty affordable options in the thermal market available on, this, on the civilian side of things uh, and, and really great quality stuff even on the lower end side where if you have night vision sitting here for three grand and thermal sitting here for three grand and you've got to take them out coyote hunting which one are you going to take with night vision you might see an eyeball to give you a clue that there's something in the fence row they come out onto the field you might pick them up if they're looking at you versus looking at the caller that kind of stuff or if you're setting up with the caller away from you a ways or right on top of you you know that kind of stuff makes a little bit of a difference but if they're in the brush and you're able to say i've got eyeballs out there something something are you going to change your calling up are you going to switch the sounds up and try to test it to see if it's a predator okay you know throw some kisses out there if it's a if quiet part of your stand or throw some coyote vocals and see if you yank it or throw some fox vocals and see if you yank it you know so you're testing it a little bit to see what it is until you can get a good real good look at it whereas with thermal you swing over and you say oh i've got two deer walking through the fence row and keep on trucking okay Mm -hmm. or i've got a coyote in the fence row and there's another one behind it and there's two more on the hill behind it and they're working their way in and that one just looked back over its left shoulder so that's telling me that their partner is probably back in the brush there on its way out onto the stand or whatever so there's a lot of stuff that you can glean from thermal in a short amount of time whipping around that you're going to have to sit and study and then to know you know that where you're testing them to see what they're going to do you know you're interrupting the flow of everything else that you've got going you know it can take more time out of your stand and that kind of thing plus i'm able to see the smoke run rising out of the chimney on the skyline and know that there's a house back there i'm able to see cattle out in the pasture at a thousand yards and know that there's cows out there Hunting in more open country, you can see coyotes on the other side of the road, either coming in or coming up to the territorial boundary and standing their ground to know maybe I make my next stand across the road. Or I don't want to leave yet because I've got a pair coming across the field at me. Yeah. I'm not going to walk out and pick up my collar. So you're not leaving as much on the table when you walk out to the truck. You don't have anything weighing on your mind, man, if I just sat five more minutes, I don't know what would have happened, you know? <laughs> right, right. Where with thermal, you have a clear conscience. You know, I gave it my 15, 20 minutes. It's not that I couldn't have called something in after that, but I couldn't see anything for a thousand yards in any direction curious about what I was doing. Right. I can confidently pack up and leave. Right, right. And, you're, and you know, and that's like a time management thing, too. It you is. know, you're kind of like hedging your bets of, okay, generally I'm going to get a response or see something 
in X amount of time. Like you said, something could come in a half hour later. Yep. Beyond that, but you might be already on your next stand and called in a double and bam, you know. Yep. But the you know the safety side of it for me is huge. You know, every bullet you shoot has got a lawyer attached to it, whether it's two o'clock in the morning or it's two o'clock in the afternoon. And if you shoot somebody's cow, that's a big deal. And if you shoot somebody's house, that's a big deal. And to be able to see everything, you know, with the night vision, as I said, you got a limitation of a couple hundred yards, you know, ideal conditions, maybe 300 that you'd be able to get a, you know, get a good look at your surroundings and, and eyeballs and all that kind of stuff out there. But with the thermal, I can see a cattle full of pasture in my backdrop and know that I have to get that coyote to clear. Or if yeah. it's hogs or whatever you're doing, if you get into a situation where you bust up a triple and stuff's flying all over the place and adrenaline's up and whatever, in a night vision situation, you might not see anything behind it or think that you're still in the clear, but, you know, I'm swinging across and, you know, sure enough, there's a pickup parked on the road behind behind mine a quarter mile and I, oh, you know, I'm like right over the top of that guy's truck with my safety off and my finger on the trigger pulling the slack out, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. it's safer and I can see more at night with a thermal scope than you can in the daytime with your naked eye out of your deer stand. Yeah, Hands down. Hands down. I mean, yeah, night vision really just, it helps you see better what's still pretty uncertain, mm-hmm. you know, whereas a thermal is, is literally, it's doing a great deal of work for you to be like, you know, yep. un, undoubtedly there's something hot over there that's probably alive or probably either mm-hmm. you should shoot or you shouldn't. <laughs> yep. And you are able, you know, with the equipment that's available now um, in thermal equipment to make excellent positive ID. You know, and things where, you know, I get questions from new thermal hunters and stuff all the time asking me, like, you know, how, how can you tell the difference between a wolf and a coyote coming in? And when you're looking through night vision or you're looking through a thermal scope or you're looking through, you know, day glass even in an open field situation or even around trees, sometimes it can be difficult to get depth perception. Um, it's gone when you're looking at something like this. You have no depth perception. So you've got to go on a lot of other cues to get your positive ID. And... You know, things like the difference between a fox, a coyote, and a wolf from a still image of that animal sitting on the edge of a field. It's really difficult to discern exactly what that is to say fox, coyote, wolf, German shepherd, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So that's where self control comes back into play. And even at a distance or with some grass around it or whatever, it could be a bobcat. You know, it could be a lot of things. So with it just sitting there and seeing that heat signature, it can be difficult. At your first grab to be able to discern exactly what it is, or if you just got a head and ears in the grass looking at you, is it a fawn? Right. Um, yeah. You know, is it a doe? So, or or even is it a buck? The horns, the antlers, uh, hold heat in velvet, but they don't hold heat in the wintertime. So you've got to have a good contrasting background or a really really sensitive scope to be able to see a rack on a buck. Otherwise, okay. they all look like does out there. You know. Hmm. So, you know, it's a it's a neat piece of equipment to play with, but. But yeah, when they're, you know, when they're sitting still, it can be really difficult to discern a positive ID. When they get up and move, then, um, you know, in my head, I see a lot of coyotes in there, so I base everything else off a coyote. So a fox has got short legs and they bounce and they've got happy feet when they're coming in. Um, longer, more flowy body when they're running. You can't typically see the whole tail unless there's a good contrasting background because there's a little whip of meat and bone in there that is the tailbone. The rest of it's just fur. Okay. So there's not a lot of heat being held, yeah. Um, depending on what you have your contrast settings at and all that kind of thing. Now a coyote, in my head, I've got the the legs in proportion to the body, and they move very efficiently. And 
a wolf in, con in contrast to that, now you've got heavier limbs. You've got blockier forelimbs, blockier features. And when they move, they move much heavier. Where a coyote is, you know, very efficient in its in its means of operation and, and running, a wolf moves more labored because their limbs are more labored and they've got bigger feet and heavier mm -hmm. forelimbs and they're, um, you know, they they run, you know, like a like a show horse is, you know, flipping its feet forward and things like that, depending well, depending on the breed. Um, anyway, so they just they have distinct characteristics in their movements, sure. the physical characteristics of the animals while they're moving, but. You know, then there's the German Shepherd piece that you know, everybody should be thinking about when you're out there night hunting. Now, when you have a doubt in your mind, let them come to the call. A German Shepherd is not going to take off when they smell man scent in the way that a coyote or a wolf or a fox is going to react to man scent out there on that collar or crossing your boot tracks. So mm -hmm. if you have a doubt in your mind, you know, and, and even if you have a doubt in your mind beyond that, you, you know, don't take the shot. Utilize that self-control. But that can be a big thing to help you with that, you know, shut your call down to a low volume and coax them all the way in rather than take them at 150 and see what they do in response to man scent out there if you have a doubt. That's a good point. Yeah. And a German Shepherd's going to sit out there and wag and, you know, come back at you or maybe it's a lab or, you know, whatever if, you're, if your equipment isn't such that you're able to say what breed it is out there. Mm -hmm. But it could be something other than a coyote. See what it does. Or does it come back your boot tracks tracking you looking for you versus and getting so it's a very mm, different yeah a very different response out there with a domestic canine is that where having kind of multiple tools with you can be a benefit too like yes. oh man i can't make it out with my thermal you know yep. and like you said there's some phenomenal thermal optics out there but yep. you know some are better than others or yep. whatever you're using you know to have that light or to it's get like that. You know, not everyone has 10 grand laying around to buy those things oh yeah that part jim sometimes i know you, you like nice <laughs> things mark so sometimes you forget you know. I do, but I'm st I'm probably still in the uh, good <laughs> flashlight uh, category at this point. Uh, yes, but, uh, you know, so night vision in conjunction with a thermal on stand can be a huge help to you. Okay, and to be scanning with thermal and be able to say definitely, I can pack up. There's nothing coming. Versus, you know, there's something something coming. Now it hits the open field, and I'm going to transition over to night vision on my rifle. That's where I'm making my positive ID. That's where I'm getting my oh, shot off okay. once they break cover and get out into the open. I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you reverse that and be scanning with night vision and shooting in thermal. It's probably not a better option than okay. shooting in night vision and scanning in thermal. Okay, yeah. I was about to ask, what do you, what do you think is easiest to shoot with let's say you don't have both night vision and both thermal and you're only going to be able to invest in one yep which would you in invest with and then when it including all the scanning and everything necessary but then i'm also curious when it comes to taking the shot how you would take the shot with that one that you have so if you only have one unit mm -hmm. you know, and we're assuming that if you only have one unit then you also have like a light though like a visible light oh okay you know so like if i just had this this one thermal unit mm -hmm. and this is a rifle scope but i use it as a scanner mm -hmm. and it you know can be a rifle scope it can be a lot of things but if i only have this unit to use you know it's it's not something i would recommend to scan with it and then have it marked on the top of your pick rail to set this on and lock it in there quick to try to get a shot off uh, it's not terribly functional okay the other thing too is is it smart depending on where you are are you hunting in a group are you hunting with uh, with buddies, or are there you know a lot of 
bad zones around that you can't be shooting into for you to be scanning your horizon and scanning your periphery with the rifle. Oh, sure. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the tripods make it easier to scan from a standing position and that kind of thing. And when I take my clients out, they've got a field of fire that they're working in, scanning in a safe direction. I stand behind them with my scanner and whip 360 the whole time I'm calling. And then when something's coming, I can redirect them, pick them up, move them, get them all aligned safely so we can shoot past each other and that kind of stuff. So, you know, if, if you had a light and a thermal, we'll say, so a visible light and you could only buy the one, one piece, night vision or thermal, I would say thermal is going to be a better asset for you out there. Mm-hmm. I would probably put the light on the gun and okay. the thermal in my hand. Oh, and then okay. you, when it actually came down to the shot, you would shoot with the visible light and just like a yep. some sort of sight on top. Yep. So you know, if I've got uh, you know I've got day glass on the top of my rifle, and I put a light with that, mm-hmm. I'm watching that animal coming in the thermal, you know, from beside my tripod. I've got my scanner up to my eye, and I'm watching that animal coming out onto the field, getting into position, you know. Closing the distance, 150 yards, 200 yards. I then put this thing down in the lanyard, grab my rifle, get it about where I want it, safety off, get myself prepared, ready to go, click the light on, be ready to take them. Because if it's a quick blast of light versus a slowly introduced light, if you can slowly introduce that light, you can transition way earlier than that. You've got your positive ID made legally here in Wisconsin and other places too. Slowly introduce that light under your day glass and be ready to take the shot but you know where they're coming from. You're prepared for it, you're ready for it, that kind of thing, based mm-hmm. on having the thermal in your hand. Now on that setup there, is that actually a thermal mounted up on that one? Yeah. Okay, yep. got it. So, you know, a couple of different directions you can go with the thermal stuff too. Range finders are pretty awesome uh, to have built into your thermal scope because, it's a, as I said, you have no depth perception once you get into that scope. And oh, looking, right. You know, so... It can also help you with positive ID in that instance where I've got a wild-looking canine sitting on the edge of the field. Is it a fox, a wolf, coyote? Being able to say that a fox at 60 looks like a coyote at 120 looks like a wolf at 200 sitting still on the edge of that field without good depth perception. So having a rangefinder built in, and there's a, a couple of different units out there that you can tie a rangefinder to, this one being all internal, uh, it gives me a readout right in the screen, and I've got my reticle set up with a scaling reticle to be able to hit a hash mark, uh, give me a quick drop chart, and run with it. You know, same kind of kind of thing with that without the rangefinder, but I've got a rangefinder in my scanner, so I'm able to mm-hmm. bring that to play then and say, oh, yep, what's that, you know, 310, let it rip. You know, so some of that stuff can help. Uh, when it comes down to the shooting piece of it, though, you know, setting zero, that's one thing that guys don't put a whole lot of thought into when it comes to the night night stuff and uh, and even you know some some hunting in general, but one thing that I really preach a lot of is uh, you know setting up your your point blank zeros. Yeah. So you know with a a two forty three like that up there, I'm running fast and flat. So you know I can I can take a look at that, put it into my Ford off, and say you know, I've got two point nine inches above bore, and I've got my velocity, and I've got my BC, and I've got everything there tied. Now, a coyote with fur on it's about nine inches deep. You take the fur off, you got about seven inches there, roughly. I don't want to hit the top, and I don't want to hit the bottom. I want to be in the vitals. So now I'm working with a five-inch box, and that's my my happy place on the side of the vitals on the coyote. 
So I want to set my zero up to where I'm never outside of that five inch box in my arc. And that allows me to shoot a 275 yard zero for that thing, still be dead holding to 300. And at night, you know, heat of the moment, even daytime calling, you know, heat of the moment stuff, you're not, you know, trying to range and get back in your gun and that kind of thing. You know, this allows me to do it in the optic and pick a hash if it's deep, but inside a 310, 320, dead hold. Um, okay. So where is that one zero then? That's a 275-yard zero. So I'm never going to be more than an inch and a half or thereabouts above the line of sight to come out of the top of the box, and I'm not going to be falling out of the bottom of the box within that distance. Okay. Gotcha. So, so you're zeroed at, because I hear so many people worried these things differently. Are you zeroed at 275 yards, or you're zeroed at 75 yards with the bullet then going up high and then coming back down you're, right at about 200? You're crossing the line of sight twice. So okay, got initially it. crossing the line of sight at 72 yards, so okay, 68, 70, right. whatever, crossing through the line of sight. I never come more than an inch and a half over the top, and I fall back onto that line of sight at 275. Okay. And then yep. I, I'm still oh, within I'm still within this five-inch box then out to 310, 320. Sweet. Okay. Yep. Makes perfect sense. Now. So, right. you know, in most of your calling scenarios, you're bringing them in well, well within, you know, those confines. I was going to say, that's got to have you covered pretty good. Oh, yeah. 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 And, you know, so some of that is dependent on caliber choice and bullet weight and, uh, and that kind of thing. So, you know, you're, you're kind of dummy proofing a lot of that to just make it point and pull mm-hmm. for the vast majority of that, uh, that stand. And then, you know, we touched a little bit on caliber choice. One thing, especially for night hunting and, you know, predator hunting in general, hunting in general is proper bullet choice. Um, you know, right now we're in the midst of this uh, ammo shortage and folks are having a hard time getting their hands on the right stuff for the job. They still want to go out and participate, or they got a planned hunt out west with buddies and whatever, and having a hard time finding the right ammo for their varmint rifle. And they're able to find something for their 300 blackout, you know, 180-grain FMJs or round nose or whatever to go out and shoot coyotes with. It's not the thing to do. Um, you know, it's not an ethical thing, likely, to zip a full metal jacket through them, let them run for a day, Right before just, before they tip over, and it's just you know beyond that, then you're likely going to be doing some extra shooting, or if you miss and it skips off something else, you know you don't know where that bullet's going to go. Making sure again that good safe direction to shoot is uh, is first and foremost, but you can back that up with proper bullet choice. And one of the neat things with Varmint bullets is that they're quick fragmenting. Mm-hmm. So if you try to shoot through grass with it, it's going to tear apart and frag. If you miss and hit frozen dirt, it's going to frag. If you miss and hit a tree branch, it's going to frag, or a rock, it's going to frag. Or, ideally, you hit your target with it, and it frags, and it delivers that whole punch of kinetic energy quickly, ethically dispatches them, and ideally is fur-friendly, too, that it's not going to exit the second second side. Right. 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 Not exactly brush-busting. No. No. (laughs) But that could be a good thing in this this case. Absolutely. And and so what, you know, what green bullet are you pushing out of that? You know, and I think sometimes people hear, oh, 243, that's a that's an old cartridge. People don't use that anymore, you know. And I think they only think that because it's not a metric designation. Right. It's the anything that's not 6657, six, you know, whatever. Right. Well, I guess you're 7 or 8 people might. I don't know. For whatever reason it's like, oh, if it's not 6 or 65, it's old. Which and you and Ryan did that podcast. The 243 is it's the OG6. 
that's what it is. What type? Uh, so let's just talk about that for a second. What types of velocities are you getting with that cartridge? And maybe what what bullet you know are you shooting? Look at you, Mark. You can't help but talk about cartridges now. I'm. That's all right. There's just too many to talk about. But I think, you know, you look at like. Uh, we were talking about this before the podcast, but, uh, you know, a, a cartridge might be better suited for delivering a lighter bullet, you know, versus maybe a heavier bullet. So what, what, why did you choose the 243, and I guess what are you pushing out of that thing? So I'm running a 65-grain VMAX. Um, I've played with 75-grain VMAX as well, and uh, some pretty scorching velocities, 37-plus you know, mm. with, the, with the 65s on a 24-inch pipe there. And, you know, that affords me a very flat trajectory. Yeah. And a lot of punch. And like I said, the vast majority of the hunting that we're doing is fairly short-range stuff. You know, I also have a, a six Creed that I'm playing with. And different powder, uh, low D, came out the same and actually showing uh, more pressure on the six Creed than uh, what I am in the 243. Same bullet and mm. boils down to the same velocity. Hmm. So, you know, like Mark was saying, we've got a lot of calibers out there to choose from. And, you know, uh, varmint hunting and varmint rifles have always been a pretty good spot to set wildcats in when people are looking to push things a little faster and, and that kind of stuff in your shorter action called, uh, shorter action cartridges. But it may not be the best best option. You know, if you're, if you're set up with a, you know, something out of the Creedmoor family that's built and designed around sending a heavy, long for caliber, heavy for caliber high BC rock, that may not be the best suited varmint bullet. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, something in that same six millimeter platform, I can run down to 55, 58, and then everywhere in between. And, uh, you know, so you've got to find a good balance for, for you and your style and what you like. But you can do an awful lot of predator damage with a 223 as well, you know, and there's nothing, nothing against it. And I'm a pretty big proponent of the 243 myself, but I've also, you know, my, my rifles are set. I got, you know, 22, 250 and, you know, all that kind of stuff. They're great varmint calibers. They're mm-hmm. superb. And I might be eking out just a little bit more with a 243, but, you know, at the end of the day, you have to go buy a new varmint rifle because you got a 22, 250 and you want a 243. And it's not necessary for the <laughs> game, but, you know, how these things work. But, uh, but yeah, so, I mean... And as you know, we talked a little bit earlier too about the the reloading side. You know, these uh, thermal scopes that we're using aren't as precise as day glass. Yep. So you know, I try because they're t- using all digital readouts and digital reticle, digital. Yeah. Yep. And you're picking a pixel as your your zero point and that kind of thing. So you know, you want to do everything that you can prior to throwing night vision on or throwing thermal on, and even even night lights uh, to get your rifle shooting well. You know, or get your shotgun shooting well test patterns and, you know, do some load D or test five, six, seven different boxes of ammo or different flavors of ammo until you get to something that your rifle likes well. And then you're building off of a half MOA group or you're building off of a, a one MOA group before you put this on there and be less precise. If your rifle's shooting a three-inch group at 100 yards and you throw this on there, you're going to open things up a fair bit. Yeah, it ain't getting any better. <laughs> right. <laughs> and especially when you're talking about potentially getting a little bit of target panic and whatnot, and you yep. add that into the mix. Oh, the human element, Jim, would never come into play. Mm-hmm. You had, uh, so that speaking speaking of accuracy and whatnot, so you shoot a lot off tripods. Now, the, the neat thing, like you mentioned earlier on, that night hunting affords you is the fact that you can be a little bit more in the open. You don't have to worry so much about skylining yourself or something like that. You can be standing off a tripod, which is, 
offers you a super stable platform, mm-hmm. even probably not far from the truck either if you got to run back and grab something, I suppose. But anyway, utilizing that tripod, how uh, how do you utilize it? I mean, sure. people people know obviously, oh, you shoot off it, right? But it's not always as simple as just stick gun on and shoot. Right. One thing I wanted to cover real quick before we breeze past it was the, the skyline piece. You still can uh, be skyline if you take high ground be mindful the coyotes are coming in underneath you, mm-hmm. looking up at you. That you know you can still see a tree against the night sky, and and good point. You know that good stuff point. is still there. Be mindful of that, but you you, you can get away with a little bit more after yeah. dark. Certainly. Yeah, but uh, but yeah. So shooting off the tripods, um, you know I I set my stuff up differently, and even even daytime calling. You know I've got a area four nineteen rail on the bottom of this to lock on um, and be able to run in the daytime if I'm using tall grass as my cover or, you know, that kind of stuff. But, you know, beyond that, I like to utilize my sling in a real quick and dirty fashion here where I, you know, I'm, I'm doing scanning where some guys don't have, you know, that, that option or whatever. They might be using the light or whatever. But my rifle sits on this tripod pointed in a safe direction, safety on, for 90% of the night. And yep. I'm doing my calling and scanning, and then I transition over once they're out of the field or once they break cover and they're coming in, I transition back over to the rifle then. So at that point, some of the ways that guys shoot off of tripods is to, you know, get down, really bear into it, put a lot of weight down on it, and you can. And there's tripods out there certainly that can take that kind of weight and ball heads that can take that kind of weight and stress. We've got one now. It's called the Radian Carbon. Just a little plug. <laughs> anyway. So I do want to see that for take off. Yeah, for sure. But uh, I typically instruct folks too, and, and myself as well, practice just letting the ball head do the work. And I'm running varmint rifles as well, so that, that's a, a piece of it. And this big canoe paddle here is about 18 pounds by itself, and I'm shooting a lightweight bullet. Um, there's not a lot of recoil involved, and the suppressor helps with some of that too, and it's tied to the ground with the tripod and, and all that stuff. So. I don't have to worry a whole lot about that rifle bucking back and, and kicking me and blowing me off target. I want to, you know, use whatever I have at my disposal and I use my, my sling and I'm right handed, left hand support hand, I always keep my sling on the left side of the tripod and wherever I am around this tripod, I can grab onto this leg, grab onto this leg, grab onto the stem in the middle, uh, you know, do whatever I need to do to get nice and steady and I'm creating some triangles there and, and making a good stable platform beyond the 77 pound ball head that's holding my rifle there so you know I can do a lot of things with it but I urge folks to you know kind of stay loose on it yeah um, and shoot with an open hand you know utilize some of the some of the stuff that are our, our friends over in PRS are building for us these vertical grips and you know aftermarket triggers and ARCA attachments and ARCA rails and all that kind of stuff that we can adapt to these tripods really easily um, to use for any number of hunting pursuits but certainly what we're doing after dark night hunting is really handy and it's light it's quick I can pick it up bang it around and get to a different position to shoot or I can step around it or if I'm hunting with a buddy I can pick it up and move it around him and make sure we're maintaining good safe fields of fire I'm not going to shoot his elbow off or anything stupid like that um, you know so a lot of ways to, to utilize the equipment, um, you know, and just something quick and dirty and simple like this locks mm-hmm. me in really steady to where I can hold and shoot inch, inch and a half groups at 275 when I throw this thing on a hand warmer really easily. Didn't you have a different kind of a setup slightly than the sling with the AR-10 that you had? I do. 
Man, I'm looking at that, though. I'm sure there's a lot of ways to skin a cat, but that does look super stable in the way you are enlisting, you know, the assistance of that sling, man. Just fast, versatile, easy to move, you know, mm. manipulate. Yeah. Oh, this is an AR-10. My fault. Uh, this is a different bolt gun. This is a, this is a cute little gun. I like this thing. So this is a, a REM 700, again, in 243. And uh, I've got a rat cut in here that I can lock into my... Um, lock into my ARCA reel there in this MPA chassis. And I get it set up, I want it to kind of be at a balance point on there. So I'm not fighting it one way or the other, but I lock that into the tripod. And then I've got this big gaudy broom handle on the front, but I can brace my wrist into the ball head in the tripod here and get a grip on the forend and also maintain a very, very stable shooting position. That's pretty solid. And when you first pulled it out and I saw a broom handle on the end of a bolt gun, I was like, we might need to get a different guest, but <laughs> but it, it makes it it makes a ton Making of sense. Making judgments on appearance, Jim. I'm not okay, but yeah. So no, actually, it makes it makes a lot of sense. It's pretty sweet. I like that setup. And you can, you know, you can tailor it to your style and uh, and whatever works for you. There's like you say, a lot of ways to a lot of ways to skin the cat. Yeah, that is a sweet setup. Uh, on most of these here, I guess, uh, aside from the shotgun. I'm seeing suppressors. Yes. How are you using those? Why are you using those? What do you like about them? I like everything about them, if I'm honest. Um, That's the, the best. That is the answer. They're the best. Yeah. So uh, when I'm out uh, on my own or with clients, I have not yet found uh, a downside to them. You know, the, the piece about making your rifle longer and heavier, there is that. But it's far outweighed by all the benefits. So something like a... I don't think you're too worried about long and heavy with that 24-inch AR-10 there. <laughs> well, and there is this, and then I've got a great big long can on the end of it, too. You know, So it's not something I'm riding around with on, on my lap and sure. yanking out a truck window. You know, So when, I, when I'm walking into stands, and this was a, something I should have shown earlier while I was up here, too, but when I'm walking into stands, I keep my rifle on my tripod. You don't have to. You could sling it, carry it in, whatever, but... They're built with a good positive attachment to that tripod. I carry them in on the tripod. Okay. Scan as you walk in. And if I see something out there, I can set the legs down easy, push it up off my shoulder, and be ready to shoot. But in that configuration with that ball tight, I just come up underneath the magazine and pick it up and carry it with the legs in the air. Oh, sweet. Just like that. I like it. As for the suppressors, do you find, I mean, I'm thinking, oh, yeah. of, I'm thinking of benefits like you're not going to, piss off any neighbors or people whose land you're you're on who said yeah you can hunt coyotes on my place just you know try not to wake up my kids with well, your boom and we were, we were talking about kind of uh, the stigma like you know you hear a shot at night you assume something's nefarious nefarious yeah. right where i guess you know you're kind of number one that's not what you're doing and number two i guess you're kind of able to Right. Lower profile, yeah, the, lower disruption to people. Like I said, you're not waking somebody up. You don't want to waste the police time with, you know, all they get called on you in, in the middle of the night. There's gunshots, you know, or something. Right. So there's that. Yes. But, but you know, just the, the hearing protection side of it. Mm -hmm. And if you're hunting with friends or you're hunting with buddies, um, you know, muzzle breaks are <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of fun at the range. But if you're... Are they even, though? Well... Yeah. Maybe, <laughs> but you know, we're, when guys are hunting in a group like this together, it's a pretty nasty deal, especially oh, yeah. at night. It can be pretty obnoxious. But uh, but yeah, so you know, these do mitigate a little bit of recoil. 
It's not to the point that a brake does, but they mitigate some recoil and help to keep things a little bit flatter on target and be able to see your impacts and, and that kind of thing while you're shooting. So that's pretty neat. But you know, beyond that, the response that I'm seeing in the animals downrange is mm-hmm. well worth it by itself. And, you know, it, it changes the perceived direction that the shot came from being downrange. And, you know, beyond that, it changes the tone. It changes mm-hmm. the volume. And, you know, I don't know exactly what goes through their head when the shot rings, but is it, you know, is it registering to them as a gunshot? You know, and how long, I guess, before a suppressed gunshot registers to them as a gunshot um, as suppressors are growing in popularity and things like that. But at this point right now, you know, and in my area, getting out and rolling with these suppressors a couple of years ago, I'm seeing some really strange responses out of these animals that I never saw before suppressors where you know, we walk into a stand and set up and start scanning and there's a coyote at 45 yards poking around in the grass, kiss them out into the open, thwop. And that kissing that I was doing to try to get this guy out in the open got the attention of a pair out there at four or 500 yards and they're still coming. Yeah. They weren't phased. Crazy. Crazy. That is crazy. Crazy cool. I don't want to ever do it, but I also want to figure out what it sounds like to be downrange of a suppressor. I don't know how to make that work. I'd say let's uh, not try that hard. Mark, I trust you. No, (laughs) never mind. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) This is like, yeah, talk about a trust fall. Um, So I need an apple. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, that's super cool. I just, I mean, the advantage, we talk about suppressors all the time. The Mm. the advantages are just... Well, and... It's not that it's not loud, and it's not that coyotes won't spook, and it's not that that pair still coming in at 500 yards isn't going to spook 90% of the time, but that would not have happened before. Right. And there's still a good supersonic crack, and like I said, we're we're moving some oh, yeah. scalding velocities with those bullets. It's right. a distinct rifle crack when it shoots. But... You know, from your perspective where you're standing, it's a heck of a lot more enjoyable. You know, the bolt guns more so than the than the gas guns as you've got chamber pop and that kind of thing to go along with it. But, man, uh, you know, I would say that in the last year, probably put 15 more in the truck based on having a can. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, well, conservatively speaking, 15 more. But, yeah, I mean, it. Uh, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. We uh, we talked a lot, or at least uh, a fair amount, about shooting off a tripod. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm looking at this collar here, this e-collar, that is also on a tripod. And I guess, Jim, this will be my uh, my blatant drop on uh, our recently released uh, tripod line, which is very cool. So I suggest anybody who needs a tripod, check them out. But this is an application that I haven't seen before for use of a tripod. So maybe tell us a little bit what you have going on here with this e-collar and and the why behind that. Sure. So getting the collar up off the ground is very, very important to help the sound carry and to just you know keep it out of the dirt and the mud and the elements, that kind of thing too. But if you get them up off the ground, this two feet, you can place that collar into spots that you know, the coyotes can't see. So if they're, as they're coming in, if you have a depression out in the field or a depression in the woods, you can set that collar low, still let that sound get out of there like it, like it would be otherwise, mm-hmm. um, elevating it off the ground a little bit. And using those terrain features like that, if the coyotes can't physically see the sound and there's enough mystery about where that sound is, 
they're going to come right to the edge of that depression to look in there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you can basically drop a tarp on the downwind side of that call on the rim of that depression is that that's where your coyote's going to come. And, you know, being able to put this wherever you want to build that X off of, whether it's a, a tall bit of grass or a fence row or something like that, uh, you might be able to hang this thing out of a tree without a tripod. But if I want to put it out in the middle of a field and get it up off the ground and, and get it out there, a cute little tripod like this uh, that back in the early days I was using this to shoot off of, but a cute little tripod like this, I throw it on my shoulder and away we go and I set it down wherever I want to set it. And if I want to elevate it to be this high off the ground, I can do that. If I want to keep it nice and short and yeah. on the ground, I can do that too. I can set my coyote decoy right over the top of this thing and have it out there in the middle of the field. I can do a, oh. lot, do a lot of things with it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a lot of callers out there that uh, offer motion decoys and things right on, on the tripod. Just a handy way to set it up. Very cool. Sweet. I like your little uh, sling that you got on there, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty fancy. <laughs> I like the uh, blood on the collar. Is that what that is? It is. Right on. Yes. Uh, she gets used. It's a, re- a, it's a real one. That's oh, authentic yeah. right there. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. I, uh, I mean... I dig this. I feel like for somebody who's looking into try and doing uh, try to do the night hunting thing, I mean, there's definitely a, a lot of good info there, and it is encouraging to me too. Thinking about it, because I'm like, well, you know, understanding that you don't necessarily have to go the just crazy expensive route of getting every last bit of night vision equipment, as cool as that might be. You know, mm-hmm. and night vision and thermal and all that stuff. As cool as it might be, because you kind of feel like a badass rolling around with that stuff. I have rolled around with, with it before, borrowed from someone else. At least a lack of it doesn't mean that you can't do it. Correct. I'd, I'd probably follow that with, but be careful, because once you probably do get into it, then you'll find yourself saving your pennies to get more into it. Yeah. Yep. It's a disease. And then, you know, along with that, to hunt, within those limitations. Yep. You know, to be able to do it safely and ethically, you know, do it within those limitations. If all you have to hunt with is a shotgun, do it within those limitations. And likewise, if all you've got to hunt with is a 22 mag, do it within those limitations. Yep. So, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of things there. And again, you know, your self-control, uh, trying to keep things ethical, uh, doing your best to keep things safe uh, in everything that you're doing hunting-wise. But, that all gets stacked and elevated when you take it after dark. Yep. Big time. Makes a lot of sense. Awesome. Well, Matt, thank you again so much. Really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. It's been awesome. For those of you out there who are interested in this stuff yourself, yeah, drop, I guess, people have more questions. Are you on Instagram? I'm not on Instagram, but I am on Facebook um, and Facebook Messenger if somebody wants to reach out to me. Uh, Matt McHugh is the name. Um, or if they hit us up, we can hit you up, and it can be like yep. a game yeah. of telephone. Perfect. Or if, or if they got a problem, problem coyote on their place, or that too, that too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know, I'm an open book. You know, so if there's something I can I can direct you to, uh, as far as equipment, it's likely I've tried it or I know somebody that's got it or has run it or whatever. Um, but beyond that, as far as styles of calling and you know between the two podcasts i feel we've uh, laid a pretty a pretty good groundwork for people to go out and build off of but uh you know again there's there's not a wrong way to do it and you know what i do is my style 
I don't expect that anybody pick up my style and run with it. But if they want to take aspects of it and give it a try, if they're in a slump or hitting a dry spell or whatever, you know, I'd certainly happy to help them answer any of those questions and see if I can get them on the right track. But sweet, yeah. awesome. Can we sign this one off with another sweet vocal call? Are you down for that? Yeah. You pick, what's your What's your favorite? Do you have a favorite? Is that like a dumb question to ask? What's your favorite one? Well, probably that uh, the coyote fight from the first one. I would say. Oh, if anybody hasn't heard that one yet, can you do that one again? Sure. That's awesome. Sure. Okay, here we go. Oh, man. If you're not juiced up and ready to go, if you're listening to this at the beginning of your day now, I, I don't know what. Check your check your pulse or something. That not is a, awesome. Not a better way to cap this one off. Whew, thank you very much, sir. Yes, thank you, Matt. All you're right. very welcome. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Signing off. Signing off. Bye, everyone. Bye. All right, that'll wrap it up for this episode of the Vortex Nation podcast. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Hit that subscribe button so you can always stay up to date on the latest happenings over here at the Vortex Nation podcast. Leave us a review or comment down below. We want to hear what you have to say about the show, maybe what you like, maybe what you didn't like, so that way we can make these podcasts as good as they can be. You can also follow us on Instagram at Vortex Nation Podcast. We'll be posting about each episode released, so that way you can go back, find these things, maybe grab a little nugget of information that you can take with you to the range, out in the field, or uh, maybe to the kitchen if we're talking about some good food. So again, everybody, thanks, and happy hunting and shooting. We appreciate it. Have a good one.